couple weeks ago, Arizona head basketball coach Sean Miller had some unsolicited advice to a Valley Media member. So today, I'll take Sean Miller up on his advice and drive back to Phoenix. Welcome to the Devil's Junkies podcast, The Road Back from Tucson. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Welcome to Devil's Junkies Podcast. I'm your host and DevilsDigest.com publisher, Hod Rubino. And today I'll attempt to do what my good friend Ralph Amazon has done many times before and actually record a podcast following an Arizona State game. I think for the first time we're doing it after an Arizona State basketball contest. And for good reason, Arizona State completes a season series sweep against its in-state rival, winning 72-64 today in Tucson. The first season series sweep since the 2008-2009 season. The first win in Tucson since the 2010 campaign. So as you can see, uh, there's definitely some historic connotation to today's contest. We will talk about what transpired Saturday afternoon in Tucson, discuss some of the key aspects of this victory, and more importantly, what it means for the upcoming Las Vegas Pac-12 tournament starting on Thursday for Arizona State, and obviously its chances for the NCAA tournament, which will begin the following week. I didn't have a chance to record a podcast right after Arizona State football spring game, and even though I gave a lot of my takes on the Speak of the Devils podcast the other week, I still uh, wanted to share some of those takes with you here the Devils Junkies podcast. Lots of construction here on the I-10, definitely a lot more than I want to remember from this past November when we traveled to the football game, so... The segment on the road may not be as long as I wanted it to be, especially with darkness falling here, but let's get started. When you take a macro look at the 2018-2019 season for Arizona State, this definitely has been a pretty historic campaign for the Sun Devils. It already secured, as you know, the second place regular season finish in the Pac-12 even before they took to the court at McHale Center in Tucson. And that second place finish does match its best finish this decade in 2009-2010 season. They did finish in second place as well. In the Pac-12, they also that also season. I'm sorry, marked the last time Arizona State did win in Tucson. And really, for a team that, on the one hand, was the most talented squad that Bobby Hurley has fielded in his four-year tenure in Tempe, there was still some thought that maybe an Arizona State team that just last year started the season shot from the cannon undefeated in non-conference play ranking as high as number third in the country 
just a falter in Pac-12 play, finishing 8-10, and 8th in the Pac-12. Some folks were skeptical if that trend would not repeat itself this year. And look, let's make no bones about it. Arizona State, even though finishing second in the conference with 12 wins, another mark that has matched the 2009-2010 season, really had an up-and-down season. And there definitely were some impressive wins in Pac-12 play alongside some very, very head-scratching losses. A lot of those quadrant three, quadrant four losses that still put ASU on the bubble right now as we speak, even after the regular season ended. And we'll talk about the NCAA tournament chances in a little bit. But I think that in some respect, Arizona State did exceed expectations, even though, again, this was the most talented team that Bobby Early has had in Tempe. And winning in Tucson definitely puts a nice bow on the regular season. Uh, One thing I should have mentioned earlier, this was Bobby Hurley's first win in Tucson. And it really was amazing to see all the vitriol, which you did expect, obviously, from the Arizona fan base towards Bobby Hurley. Those chants, Bobby, Bobby, were ringing pretty much, I would say, for the first 30 or so minutes of the game. But the latter half of the contest is a a period of time where Arizona State was pretty much in control. So those chants did die down. And I even saw, more than I expected, Arizona fans headed to the exit with quite a few minutes left on the clock. And really, the game not quite in hand for Arizona State. And that was a surprising sight to see. But again, we talked about an historic achievement by Arizona State and by Bobby Hurley, and I guess some Arizona fans just could not stomach seeing it from themselves. they rather maybe listen down the radio or watch a replay later on. Another thing concerning uh, the behavior, I would say, of Arizona towards Bobby Hurley was that, and I'm not kidding here, being there in person at the McHale Center, every time Bobby Hurley did argue a call with the referees. And yes, we know it happens quite often, maybe too often to some liking. Every time that took place, Bobby Hurley arguing with the ref was plastered on the big video screen there at McHale Center. I thought that was a bit comical, but uh, call it karma or poetic justice, Arizona State and Bobby Hurley come out victorious out of this contest. Speaking of head coaches, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but a lot of folks did ask me about Sean Miller, who I referred to in the beginning of my podcast. And uh, look, all of us have old takes exposed, and Sean Miller's words of, you can drive back to Phoenix, were definitely used maybe a little too much by me, so not too proud to admit that. Although I'm probably not the only one that used that phrase uh, more than once yesterday. But in any event, a lot of folks have been asking me about Sean Miller and the comments that he made in the post game, implying that he perhaps has coached his last game at the McHale Center 
and conversely his last season as the Wildcats head coach. And I talked to U of A insider right after those comments were made, and he pointed out a couple of things. He said that Sean Miller did actually make the same comments this time last year, and that's why there was some speculation that he may have coached his last season with the Wildcats in the 2017-2018 season. And obviously, that did not take place. That insider also mentioned to me that if Arizona were to get an NIT invite, this is assuming that they don't win the Pac-12 tournament in Las Vegas this week, that they probably would decline it just because there's too much drama concerning Sean Miller's future with the Wildcats. I've said many times before, and I'll say it again here on the podcast, I feel that Sean Miller perhaps deep down knows there's a good chance, maybe even an excellent chance, that he was caught on tape saying that he will pay a recruit to attend the University of Arizona. And basically, when he is testifying in the college basketball scandal trials that are taking place in New York next month, that there's a good chance that that recording will come to light and or him admitting on the stand under oath that he was suggesting that a payment would be made to recruit to attend the University of Arizona. So I think keeping all those circumstances in mind that Sean Miller knows that the jig is up, if you will, and that as much as he's been able to deflect and convince his followers, if you will, that he has done no wrong, that there'll be nowhere to run, nowhere to hide when he's at a trial, forced to answer under oath whether he did or did not suggest a payment for a recruit to attend the University of Arizona. So, again, not going to spend too much time on Sean Miller's future in Tucson. I don't think you joined this podcast to listen at length at what's going on over there. But again, just because a lot of folks did ask me that question, I felt compelled to talk about it, at least due to the fact that those comments were made shortly after Arizona State's win against Arizona. Arizona State 72-64 win over Arizona. The thing that really stuck out to me, I'm not going to say the most, but one of the key aspects is that Arizona State has been notorious having very slow starts in their Pac-12 road games. And the fact that they were able to withstand all the emotion that obviously comes with playing in Tucson in front of a crowd that I'm not sure it was a sellout over there, but uh, definitely one of the bigger crowds that Arizona enjoyed this season, which has been a very down season for that team. I thought that Arizona State was able to play relatively well, went into uh, halftime 
tied at 33. And one thing that was probably a warning sign, at least at the time, was that uh, Lugens Dort, who had a very strong first half, had three fouls very late in that period. And you just wondered how much that would hamper Arizona State the rest of the way. Another thing uh, that was uh, notable is that uh, Elias Valtonen, the true freshman from Finland, probably played the most he had, especially in the first half for the Sun Devils, and had really productive nine minutes where he grabbed four rebounds, had one assist, actually had one block that would have prevented Arizona going into halftime with the lead. And sometimes it's, it's those little psychological edges at the very late stage of the first half that can carry over into the second half. And I thought that Valtonen had a hand in that and not really allowing Arizona to have huge momentum or anything of that sort going into halftime. In the second half, Arizona State probably played one of its best second halves we've seen all year long. And even though there was a little lull in there that we'll talk about in a few minutes, I just thought that the fact that they were able to build a nice lead did face some adversity past the midway point of the second half and still able to win quite convincingly down the stretch, I think were great signs for a team that is really showing more maturity, showing more poise, and the fact that they have won five of the last six contests late February, early March, that's definitely the right time of the season to get hot. The story of the game, at least from an Arizona State perspective, is obviously Remy Martin had 27 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists. In the second half alone, had 17 points, 4 rebounds, and 4 assists, committing only 1 turnover. And those obviously stats that a lot of point guards in the Pac-12, if not around the country, would be happy to have for the entire 40 minutes. And Ray Martin was able to do this just in the second half. And obviously in the first half, was definitely one of the more instrumental players for the Sun Devils. If you remember, Remy Martin scored 31 points when Arizona State beat Arizona and Tempe earlier this year. And I made the comment that since James Harden, I have not seen an ASU player dominate, if not torment, its in-state rival as much as Remy Martin did this year. And we all know that Remy Martin is a player that can be sometimes really erratic, sometimes play a lot of the so-called hero ball rather than being the distributor. And I know a lot of folks were frustrated that here we have a head coach in Bobby Hurley, arguably the best college basketball point guard to ever play the game, not able to rein in Remy Martin or maybe giving him some unwarranted freedom. And maybe that narrative had some validity in the beginning of the season, but I really feel that in the last 
six, eight games, we're seeing a different Remy Martin there on the court. And the numbers, not only yesterday, but really the entire season, are proving that time and time again. Doug Tamro, Arizona State's Basketball Sports Information Director, pointed out that in 18 league games, Remy Martin led the Pac-12 in both assists per game at 6.2, as well as a stat that sometimes gets overlooked and really should be front and center when talking about point guards, assist-to-turnover ratio, where he had 3.2. And furthermore, just having 35 turnovers in 617 minutes, so... A lot of teams will go only as far as the point guard play, and having a player like Remy Martin at the helm, and as you recall, co-six-man player of the year last season, playing behind three very good seniors for Arizona State was a valuable learning experience, and now being the floor general for Arizona State has overcome an ankle injury very early in the season and really a non-conference portion of the schedule where Remy Martin was, as I mentioned, erratic, definitely not playing up to his potential capabilities. But in Pac-12 play, again, especially in the last six, eight games, we've definitely seen that Remy Martin that was really able to take it to the next level, in my opinion, and really lead Arizona State to that second place finish. I mentioned earlier about Lugens Dort receiving three fouls late in the first half. And one of those fouls actually was a technical foul after he was joined with some Arizona fans after a made three-pointer. And it never ceases to amaze me that whether you're a fifth-year senior or just a true freshman like Lugens Dort, that you understand the intensity of this rivalry and it was a good thing it didn't cost Arizona State in the end, and Lugan Stort did not start the second half, although he got into the lineup, I think, 45 seconds into that period just because it, it was deemed just too valuable to be on the bench. But the fact that he was able not to commit any fouls in the second half, calm down, if you will, still scored seven points, three of eight from the field, had two rebounds, two assists. I think you're seeing a freshman that's really coming into his own. And as we know with against Dort, he started out the non-conference portion, at least the first four or five games, absolutely on fire. A lot of talk about him being a lottery pick or maybe a fringe lottery NBA draft pick. Since then, he hit the freshman wall, as they say, and... Now the projections are more towards the lower first round of the draft. Another question a lot of people are asking me, do I think Logan Stort is going to be the first one-and-done player for the Sun Devils? My answer is yes, unless those projections really change to his detriment in the next few months over here. But I think you're also seeing a, a player that, as I mentioned, in the last few games has really been more responsible with his decision-making, uh, still able to contribute, like I said, with assists, with rebounds. And him and Remy Martin, if not the best 
backcourt in the Pac-12, I don't see how you cannot put them top three right now at the end of the regular season. To me, possibly the unsung hero of this game might be Kimani Lawrence, and he's a player that, at least on my message board, the Devil's Huddle, really catches a lot of flack from fans. And I know that he's one of the four-star recruits that Bobby Hurley brought in, and perhaps didn't live <clears throat> to his expectations that much at all, definitely on a consistent basis. Although, if you remember, non-conference play actually started out really strong. And I thought that his 10 points off the bench were huge yesterday, especially in light of Rob Edwards having a horrible game, uh, not scoring any points in the contest whatsoever. It was imperative for Kimani Lawrence to step up, and he definitely uh, did that. Obviously, making uh, free throws down the stretch are crucial in games like this, and Kimani Lawrence was 3 for 3 from the line. Arizona State as a whole was 12 of 16, so it was also good to see that a team that struggled quite a bit with free throw shooting throughout the Pac-12 season was able to buckle down, at least for the most part, and make the three throws down the stretch, making sure that the game was never too close to comfort down the stretch. Arizona State is a team that has shown a lot of resiliency. They have a record of 8-1 following a loss. And it's been said many times that that resiliency is all nice and dandy, but obviously going into the Pac-12 tournament and the NCAA tournament doesn't really help you a lot. But the resiliency is still a trait that can definitely help you within a game. On Saturday, Arizona State had an eight-point advantage with about 10 minutes left and did have to show its resiliency one last time in the regular season because a 10-win run by the Wildcats really made you wonder if Arizona State was able, was going to actually going to squander this game. But the Sun Devils rebound go on a 6-0 run that later grew to a 14-4 run and really put the game away, notching an historic win in Tucson. So now the question is, with Pac-12 tournament starting, what can we expect from the Sun Devils? Well, the first round bye, I think, is huge. It's something that Arizona State, by and large, has not enjoyed going into the conference tournament, whether it was played back in the Staples Center in Los Angeles or now in the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. And on Thursday at 6 p.m., the Sun Devils will face the winner of the UCLA-Stanford contest. ASU beat UCLA in their lone meeting this year and split the season series with the Cardinals. I would say on paper that overall it's not a daunting matchup for Arizona State. I think they would prefer to play UCLA rather than Stanford. But I don't feel that facing Stanford in Las Vegas is going to be much harder than some other opponents that Arizona State could face later on in the tournament. 
it is important for Arizona State really not to back into the NCAA tournament like they did last year. Where Arizona State lost five of their last six games before facing Syracuse in the NCAA tournament. And actually didn't play a horrible game against Syracuse by any means, but I just felt that really did not have any momentum in late February and the month of March. And this year, Arizona State winners of five of six of their last games going into the Pac-12 tournament. So I do feel that they're in a good place, maybe in the best place they've been all season long. And that's why I feel confident that they should be able, emphasis on should, because the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde act can rear its ugly head at any moment here for Arizona State. But it's a team that should, I believe, win its first game, whether it's UCLA or Stanford. And the big question is, what's going to happen on Friday if Arizona State would get that far as they meet the winner of Utah and Oregon? Uh, Utah and Oregon are both teams that Arizona State did split their season series with. And ironically, the split was very dominating on both ends of the spectrum. Arizona State really handled Utah quite well on the road and Oregon quite well in Tempe, but the opposite was true in the other two matchups. So that on paper is going to be a bigger test for Arizona State. But first things first is their Thursday 6 p.m. tip-off against the winner against UCLA and Stanford. And again, I, I feel that if they do win that game, then I think all the talks about the bubble can cease right there, right then, regardless of what Arizona State does on Friday, let alone Saturday, if they do get that far. I feel that a win on Thursday can put them on the 11th seed line, and they probably should stay there. In other words, should not drop to the number 12 seed and a return trip to Dayton in the playing game for Arizona State. So, give credit for the Sun Devils. Up until three, four weeks ago, we really weren't sure what kind of team we're going to see down the stretch, whether the bubble was going to burst for Arizona State in terms of their NCAA tournament chances. But I feel that this team, again, is peaking at the right time. And we're seeing more of its key players playing well and perhaps their best basketball of the entire season. And that uh, really can go a long way for Arizona State, which in the process notched some historic marks against his in-state rival. Mama Mavis, oh mama, they try my patience. Is gone. Who was left to save us? We mourn. I'm praying for my neighbors. They say the devil's at work and is calling favors. You say I'm dangerous. I speak for the nameless. I fly with the vultures. I be with them bangers. If change don't come, then the change won't come. If the bands make them dance, then the rain gon' come. Am I passing the light? Looking So the roadshow portion of the podcast has ended. I'm back home now. Did about 
26 plus minutes of the podcast on the road. Definitely have appreciation for somebody like Ralph, who, like myself, did it solo many times, driving in the darkness. Maybe less construction than I had, maybe more construction, but uh, nonetheless, not an enviable task. So definitely admire the job that Ralph did in that vein so many times before. So we're going to shift gears now to Arizona State football and summing up their spring practice. As I mentioned earlier, I wish I could do this just a little earlier than I wanted to. Uh, The thing is that I do usually record this podcast on a Sunday, and there were two ASU basketball games that day, so that cramped my style, if you will. And also the fact that I did share a lot of my thoughts and takes on the Speak of the Devils podcast last week. So if you didn't have an opportunity to listen to it yet, please do. Uh, My staff member, Jordan Kay, was with me over there providing his input, obviously with Brad Denny and Joe Ely, the host, who always do an excellent job on that podcast. So we all know that the quarterback competition during spring practice was the most talked about topic. I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but the prediction that I had that Dylan Sterling Cole and Jaden Daniels will be able to separate themselves from the competition did come true. I don't know if the gulf is that deep between Joey Yellen and his fellow freshman Jaden Daniels and junior Dylan Sterling Cole, but definitely deep enough that Joe Yellen, in my eyes, is the number three signal caller going into fall camp behind Sterling Cole and Daniels, who really are more uh, like 1 and 1A. Ethan Long, the other true freshman quarterback that participated in spring practice, to me, early on in those 15 sessions, really fell behind the eight ball quite a bit and was never able to make up that ground, it would be an absolute upset to see him even end up being the number three quarterback when the season started, let alone the backup or the starter. But we'll see what fall camp does bring in in that aspect. But I think if anybody was dreading a quarterback battle that was going to be very muddled going into fall camp, those concerns are really invalid in my opinion. And the battle between Sterling Cole and Jaden Daniels is going to be the battle we're going to see in fall camp. And I really can't see Joe Yellen, let alone Ethan Long, really mounting any kind of pressure on that tandem of signal callers. I feel that Sterling Cole, just with his increased maturity, his approved leadership, abilities, and obviously the inherent advantage of knowing the playbook better than his competition definitely showed out there. But at the same time, Jaden Daniels, as a true freshman, was very composed, very poised. I've said many times before, and I'll say it again, as many accolades as this young player has received, and obviously in in Arizona State's history, the highest rated quarterback to ever sign with the Sun Devils. I feel that he really has done 
an outstanding job just blocking out the noise, not worrying about what expectations are or are not placed on him and just going out there and playing. And I forget which uh, receiver mentioned it. I think it was maybe Frank Darby, but talked about what a great catchable ball Jen and Daniels throws every time he's out there. And it would really be easy for a true freshman to be rattled or for a true freshman to really reinvent themselves or try to reinvent themselves thinking that this would give him an edge in a quarterback competition, which is wide open. And to Daniel's credit, he really just stayed the course and was very, very consistent. The only interception that he threw, ironically, was in the last practice in the so-called spring game of the Sun Devils. And that really tells you a lot right there. I mean, not that Dylan Sterling Cole threw interceptions left and right, but in comparison to the other two freshmen, Yellen and Long, Daniels was definitely more accurate and it wasn't even that close. So, again, I don't think there's going to really be going to be too much drama in the quarterback competition going into fall camp. Some folks think that, think that Joe Yellen can pull a Taylor Kelly, so to speak, as he did in 2012 and come all the way back from the third spot on the depth chart to capture the starting position. Uh, I have my doubts. What Taylor Kelly did is definitely the exception, not the norm. And I don't know if I would really fully expect that to take place based on what we saw in spring practice. Moving to the running back position, the only question over here was who's going to emerge as the number two backup to Eno Benjamin. Early in the spring, I thought that Isaiah Floyd was mounting a very strong charge that may have separated himself from the other running backs in the group. But A.J. Carter is somebody who made a lot of strides. And right now, I would put Isaiah Floyd and A.J. Carter as 2-2A two and two a in terms of the position of the depth chart. So it's obviously not a position battle that's gaining as much attention as the quarterback one, but definitely a storyline you want to look into when fall camp begins the first week of August. As far as Demetrius Flowers, the true freshman who gray-shirted, as you know, and arrived on campus only in January of this year after a serious injury that was suffered during his senior year at high school, really looked out of shape with a lot of rust to knock off, which I wouldn't hold it against him that much. It's only natural that somebody in his position is not going to start his first spring practice ever shot out of the cannon, just wowing coaches and observers alike. But was disappointing to see him Reaggravate that shoulder injury and be sidelined for a good portion of spring practice and really taking himself out of the competition for that backup running back to, you know, Benjamin and interesting to see if he can redeem himself in full camp, so to speak. But, but right now I just don't think that the odds are really stacked in his favor all that well to do that just because I think Floyd and A.J. Carter are able to create quite a distance between themselves and the others. 
Paul Lucas, and I know we talked about this uh, earlier podcast that he did start out at running back, but ended up being a backup slot wide receiver to Kyle Williams because of the injuries to John Humphrey and Ryan Newsom. And as a slot wide receiver, I think uh, did a pretty good job. And right now is definitely somebody that I think Humphrey Newsom should be worried about in terms of taking their spot in the depth chart. And, and really as one team source told me, say, look, I mean, Humphrey Newsom definitely have enough talent to be on this team and, and to be in the two deep, but have they proven they can be healthy? Have they proven they can be dependable on? And so far the answer is pretty much no. Now, with all the months of rehab that they have ahead of them, by the time August rolls by, you would hope that they can bring their body to a level that can withstand the physical toll that fall camp is going to take on you and really not spend their practices on the sidelines rather than on the field. But that's a big if right now. That's something that is an unknown and Paul Lucas is taking full advantage of that. But going back to the running back position, ASU is still going to be in the market to try and land a running back, whether it be a junior college player who will have a redshirt year and two years of eligibility or just cast their net wide enough to catch a running back from the high school ranks that, for one reason or another, fell in between the cracks and Arizona State really wants to take a swipe at. So don't be surprised if one of the additions in the 2019 class is going to be from the running back position. And speaking of the 2019 class, we're definitely expecting a transfer on the offensive line to be one of those players, and perhaps the two remaining slots will be two offensive linemen who will be, who will have to really sit out this year just because you have an offensive line that's going to start five seniors, and it really wouldn't make sense to bring a graduate transfer with one-year eligibility to the team right now, unless he was by chance just head and shoulders above some, if not all the players that Arizona state would tout now on their starting five. But the bigger question for the offensive line is the second team, because you really don't have a lot of experience. I mean, dread church freshmen like Spencer Lavelle and Ralph Frias definitely had their struggles to some extent in spring practice. Free has probably more than Lavelle. Jared Bell at backup center actually looked pretty well and was one of the reasons why Arizona State was comfortable moving Kate Cote to the guard position and having Corey Stevens actually move to defense to help the defensive line thin numbers over there. So really for the offensive line, it's just a matter of developing depth and can't say we saw anything conclusive in that area during spring practice, perhaps with the exception of Bell, who I think showed he could be a formidable backup center to Cole Cabral. But, 
if you're an Arizona State fan, you just hope that all the experience that Arizona State has on the offensive line can really help this unit not to drop off its production from last year when it obviously helped you know, Benjamin set a school record in rushing yards when it cut down quite a bit on the number of sacks. So if this offensive line can keep those trends going, then there really wouldn't be much issues with that position over there. But again, the depth of that line and really grooming the key participants in the 2020 season on the front five, that's really the storyline to follow in fall camp and beyond. Looking at the wide receiver group, we definitely saw all the flashes we expected to see from both Frank Darby and Brandon Ayuk. Uh, Kyle Williams, due to his class schedule, missed quite a few practices during the spring, but when he was there on the field, he definitely showed how valuable he can be to this group. Now, both Frank Darby and Brandon Ayuk did have some injuries towards the end of spring, which sidelined them quite a bit. And we saw a lot of walk-ons over there, sometimes on the first team, definitely on the second team. And I think that's why you have, perhaps out of any position group on offense, a more incomplete picture at wide receiver than any other position group on this side of the ball. Jordan Porter, the redshirt freshman, I think is the one that really excites you the most out of this position. Saved his best for last in the spring game. Scored uh, two touchdowns. Really showed what kind of weapon he can be on offense. So really curious to see what he can do in full camp. His chances of unseating Darby or Ayuk in the starting lineup are probably pretty low, but in terms of the first player off the bench, if you will, at the wide receiver position, that's definitely Jordan Porter right now, and I don't think there's any question about that. As mentioned earlier, John Humphrey and Ryan Newsom's health can play a factor over here in terms of how much playing time they will see. Um, I don't believe any of them can really push Kyle Williams at the slot receiver, but in terms of just being a capable number two option, and I would say Humphrey probably more than Newsom can actually play one of the outside receiver spots that Ayuk and Darby are going to occupy in the starting lineup. So that's another thing uh, to look out for. And I think if anything, wide receiver Jordan Curley, who Charlie Fisher, the wide receiver's position coach, seems to be very high on, maybe is someone that can make an early push for playing time. That'll be interesting. Uh, the other true freshman, uh, Ricky, Ricky Purcell, locally we're here from Tempe, Corona del Sol, I think could be a very valuable special teams weapon. Maybe not even so much as a returner as he would be uh, just a a gunner down the field or any position similar to that. But who knows if those newcomers at wide receiver uh, can make their mark again if the health situation of Humphrey and Newsom doesn't improve that much from spring practices to fall camp. Rounding out the offense at tight end, I thought that Tommy Hudson showed a lot of flashes in terms of being a receiver. Rel- 
relatively speaking, we saw the tight end being more involved in the passing game compared to what we saw in the season, let alone fall camp or spring practice of last year. So it'll be interesting to see how much he can be incorporated in the scheme. Curtis Hodges, the 6'7", former wide receiver, made the transition to tight end. Obviously, with his body type, we'll need to pack up pack on, I'm sorry, a lot of pounds to become an effective blocker as a tight end. But in terms of as a receiving tight end, the skills are definitely over there. I think that Hodges is someone who probably enjoyed a better freshman year than sophomore campaign as a wide receiver. And maybe tight end could be the niche that they're looking at. But something that myself and others have mentioned time and time again, that if you're looking for any newcomers, on offense to make an early and immediate impact, it's definitely tight end Nolan Matthews. I can't say how much the coaches obviously have been gushing about Matthews even before he set foot on campus as an official member of this team. And it'll be really interesting to see how much playing time he can snag away from Hudson and or Hodges when fall camp commences, let alone the regular season. He's somebody that the coaches feel is maybe more of a complete tight end compared to anybody on the roster right now in terms of blocking skills and receiving skills. So it will be interesting to see how much Matthews can validate that high measure of confidence that the coaches have in him. Moving over to the defense and the defensive line, there's really no way to overstate the thin, thin numbers this position had in spring practice. Only four scholarship players on the defensive line that were there on that position last year that participated in spring practice. Two of them, Shannon Foreman and George Lee, did have injuries throughout the spring, making the numbers really, really borderline comical, really at no fault of anybody on the coaching staff or the team itself. It's just that the departures of uh, Jalen Bates and Darius Slade really did hurt the numbers there. A bright spot that came out of it, I think, was Richard Fresher and Michael Matus, who was able to get probably much more snaps in spring practice than he expected to get just a couple months ago. And the big question is that how can he translate that into a position on the two deep for the Sun Devils when fall camp and the regular season begins? I think he's going to have a hard time doing so just because of the talent that's coming in with incoming freshman Stefan Wright, one of the highest rated newcomers on this Arizona State 2019 recruiting class. Amiri Johnson is another true freshman that I could see possibly redshirting. He's really more of the diamond in the rough type of recruit, even though USC made a very hard and late push on him right around signing day to flip his allegiance and join the Trojans, but he didn't end up signing with Arizona State. And I think somebody like Matus would also have to battle two transfers 
coming into the program, TJ Tessafea, who is a junior college transfer from American River College in the Sacramento area. Somebody actually has three years to play plus a redshirt season. And Rice graduate transfer Roe Wilkins only has one year of eligibility left. But someone that Arizona State actually beat Arizona out of all programs out there for his services. So that's how the defensive line is shaping up over there. Also should mention Anthony Cooper from the local defensive lineman from Goodyear Millennium was coming in as a blue shirt recruit. In other words, his scholarship will count towards the 2020 recruiting class. Somebody who also could redshirt as well, but a player that uh, is also going to figure, if not this year, next year, uh, in in the two deep. Uh, DJ Davidson, the nose tackle for Arizona State who was sidelined due to injury, is somebody that could uh, be 100% healthy or really should be 100% healthy when fall camp starts. And I expect uh, him uh, to definitely have an impact on the depth chart for the Sun Devils right there. Um, As we mentioned in in a previous podcast, two players from the offense, uh, Corey Stevens from the offensive line and Mark Walton from the tight end group, did end up practicing with, with a defensive line. Whether it's something that we'll see in full camp or not, um, I think probably greater chances you'll see Walton stay there at the defensive line. Corey Stevens may be up in the air somewhat, but I wouldn't be surprised to see him stay as well. So it's just one of those weird situations where you had barely a handful of defensive linemen, scholarship players, that is, practicing in spring practice. And that number will pretty much triple itself when fall camp starts. So in terms of not getting an incomplete picture on position groups, we talked about the wide receiver group on offense and on defense. It's without a doubt the defensive line that you really don't know how to gauge them coming out of spring practice and fall camp by default is going to paint a much different picture And if you're an Arizona State coaching staff, you hope a much better picture as well. Now, the thin numbers at the defensive line did uh, force the defense to show a lot of two down linemen looks. And another reason they were able to do that is because of the depth at linebacker. Um, We mentioned previously as well that linebackers coach Antonio Pierce said that Kalen Curse Thomas, the redshirt senior, is the only pencil and starter linebacker. Now, obviously, he did that in part to light a fire under the two sophomores who had sensational freshman years, Merlin Robertson and Darian Butler. But I think it's also a testament to what Curse Thomas has done in the spring, really giving Antonio Pierce and the coaching staff, the quote-unquote good headache as to who to play and when. This, this is still a linebacker group that had uh, Tyler Johnson miss spring because of an injury, but he'll be back for fall camp. 
Kyle Kyle Soli, the local Scottsdale product, continues to play well. He's somebody that even last year already drew a lot of praise from Antonio Pearson, defensive coordinator, Danny Gonzalez, and did nothing in, in the spring to show that that praise was not warranted. So he's somebody that is definitely going to figure in the, in the two deep, I feel, when it's all said and done. Walk on local linebacker Case uh, Hatch, who prepped locally here at uh, Gilbert Perry, went two years on a Mormon mission. Luckily, did not go to a place uh, too exotic, but just uh, to South Florida and was able to train enough and keep in shape that uh, he did uh, show up, uh, at least from a physical standpoint, uh, much better than a lot of people thought he, thought he would be. Classic Mike linebacker that can be a very formidable backup, I feel, to, to Darren Butler over there. You still uh, have Stanley Lambert, who suffered a serious injury late last season during putting pole practices. It'll be interesting to see what he can do come fall camp, but he's one of the players on either side of the ball with the highest ceiling on this Sun Devil 2019 squad. So that's another another option at linebacker over there. So almost embarrassment of a riches, if you will, at linebacker for Arizona State, something that did help them in spring practice balance out the low numbers at defensive line and be curious to see the position battle over there come fall camp. It's again, might go under the radar compared to a quarterback battle, but nonetheless, a lot of intriguing storylines over there. Lastly on defense, let's talk about the secondary and all eyes were on Tyler Wiley and whether he was going to be a limited participant or a full participant in spring practice and it really shows you that sometimes the mental rehab that a player has to go through is greater than the physical rehab. Physically, Tyler Wiley was able really to be full go from day one of spring practice, but he did have to get over that mental hump. And again, it's not unique to Tyler Wiley. That's not an indictment on the redshirt senior or anything like that. And once Wiley was able to get over that mental hump, as I mentioned, he showed uh, what a valuable asset he can be at that Tillman safety. Danny Gonzalez raved about his play in the spring, and he feels very, very good about the contribution that he can make and a contribution he probably should have made last year. Gonzalez went on record saying that Wiley's absence did cost the team one or two wins, and that is uh, definitely very high praise if I've ever seen that another safety that really impressed is Ashari Croswell still amazed that it's been just about a month and a half since the bowl game in Las Vegas against Fresno State in the beginning of spring practice to see how much he has transformed his body in a relative short period of time really really impressed not only with his physical makeup but the way the way he played he was actually playing the Tillman safety position while Wiley was still sideline or being a limited participant. And the cross training is something that the whole defensive staff, especially in the secondary wanted to stress this spring. And, and they feel that they just have a much more well-rounded player in Ashari Croswell now beginning his sophomore year with the team. 
as you know, a player that had a rough freshman season for the first half of that campaign, but the second half was an absolute interception machine. And you just saw that his understanding of the game, even last year, grew and grew from week to week, and that improved his play. And I think his understanding of the scheme right now is on a whole different level. And I expect him to be definitely one of the stars of this defense in 2019, the way he performed in spring practice. At other safety position, we have uh, Cam Phillips starting there. Uh, quite in comparison compared to, to Wiley and Quasville, but definitely a very dependable player over there who showed definitely some flashes as a, as a freshman. Uh, I think it was great that the team was able to, to redshirt Phillips and now have four more years of his play over there as somebody who really should be one of the mainstays for the Arizona State secondary. And speaking of mainstays, I think that cornerbacks Kobe Williams and Chase Lucas really personify that term when it comes to that position on the team. It's absolutely invaluable to have a tandem who's going to start their third year in a row. And my trusted uh, researcher Joe Healy promised, or maybe quasi-promised, that he's going to do a research piece to see when's the last time Arizona State had one cornerback, let alone both, starting three years in a row. But either way, absolute invaluable asset for Danny Gonzalez and the ASU defense to have that level of experience in a conference that certainly tests you vertically week in and week out. Speaking of cornerbacks, I think that one somewhat surprise was the play of Tamarcus Davis, the transfer from Baylor, who did win a scout player of the year in the 2018 season. A player that the coaches definitely propped up quite a bit as challenging, maybe more Chase Lucas and Kobe Williams for the starting position. But something I was really curious to see that how he would do not being on the scout team and to see if that really elevated his performance that much more. And if you recall, Chase Lucas, due to a family reason, actually missed the first week of spring practice. And I thought that you may have even a Wally Pitt situation, if you will, with Tamarcus Davis taking full advantage of his starting duties for Arizona State. But uh, that never materialized. He actually had a rough start for the spring and once Chase Lucas came back, it was game over in a way. And Tamarcus Davis was regulated to a backup. I think showed some improvement towards the end of the spring, but definitely as we go into fall camp, I don't seem to be a credible threat, if you will, to unseat any of the starters in, in cornerback. Now, if he proves me wrong, so be it. But Right now, I just feel that both Chase Lucas and Kobe Williams are definitely, as I mentioned, men, mainstays at, at starting cornerback. But I still feel that there should be some good depth behind him uh, in Jordan Clark, one of the lone uh, four-star prospects signed in the 2019 class. Uh, Kean Markham from, uh, from Long Beach Poly 
is another player uh, to, to keep your eye on. And you still have Taron Adams and, and Dom Harrison, who were junior college transfers last year, that still may have, have something to say about the, the, their depth chart position. So I think you have a lot of capable bodies in the secondary, both at cornerback and at safety in terms of returning players and incoming freshmen. And this is a secondary that I expect to take an additional step in their development because I felt that in 2018, they cut down by a lot the numbers of critical mistakes and just backbreaking passing plays that go for 30, 40 yards at a time. Something we saw a lot in 2015, 16, Maybe not that much in 2017 in comparison, but still more than more than you would want. And I don't know if the secondary is really the strength of the defense, so to speak, because I think that definitely all the talented linebacker can give them a run for their money. But <clears throat> let's just say that those two positions form a very strong nucleus and are first and foremost the reason why well, I can expect an Arizona State defense that made so much strides in 2018 to even be that much better in this coming season. So in future podcasts, we're going to have our football talk probably limited more to the recruiting until Pac-12 Media Day rolls by towards the end of July. But just to put a bow on spring practice, I think there's some areas that you as an ASU fan should feel very good about on offense, quarterback, running back, wide receiver. I would put in their offensive line if the depth gave you uh, more reason for optimism, but that's right now a TBD. And on defense, uh, definitely a linebacker and secondary, lots of talent over there. You definitely anxious to see how the defensive line materializes, but with a lot of body, a lot of talent coming into fall camp, I think that's uh, one position that uh, as much of a concern as it was in the spring will be much less of a concern in fall camp. And actually, I would be remiss if I didn't mention special teams. Uh, Mike Turk, who uh, replaced Mike Sleep Dalton as a starting punter for Arizona State, he gave me a hard time for not mentioning in my recap video spring practice that I didn't mention him and the special team. So I will definitely give Michael Turk uh, his due. He definitely showed to me why the coaching staff didn't lose any sleep to put it nicely that uh, Mike Sleeple Dalton, no pun intended, left the program and having Turk as a starting punter. I think that the production definitely should not drop, if not increase in 2019 in that vein. At uh, place kicking, I felt that the Brandon Reese finished spring on a stronger note than he actually started it. And uh, curious to see if he can really take that extra step in his junior year, because I thought this sophomore year, and even though I discussed this with his position coach, Sean Slocum, I thought that Reese did hit a lull in there 
in the middle of the season, which really didn't cost any games, but was, I guess, somewhat disappointing to see after such a solid freshman year. But I definitely wouldn't call it a sophomore slump, but I think uh, his junior year definitely has room for for improvement, and I'm curious to see what advances he can make uh, from his uh, standpoint. Uh, Brandon Ayuk is really the established returner, I feel, both at punt and kick return. I know he was uh, really counted on to assume that position to much greater lengths in the 2018 season. And Nikhil Harry, as we all know, took over at least a punt return midway through the season. Obviously had that memorable 92-yard uh, punt return at USC and was able to maybe be a stopgap over there. But uh, Ayuk is uh, definitely going to be crucial to improve Arizona State's special teams when it comes when it comes to the returning game. And I thought that he really gave us a very positive and encouraging glimpse during during the Las Vegas ball. And if you recall, that was a game where he had over 130 all-purpose yards, and a good good chunk of that came on kick and punt return. Uh, I was surprised to see Chase Lucas over there at punt return because I think he did struggle somewhat his redshirt freshman year, but in the spring, as much as it can you evaluate that position, I thought that he did uh, he did actually uh, play well over there. So return game as a whole, I think uh, could be better for Arizona State uh, this year. Our last segment is devoted to your questions that you fielded both on my peer message board, Devil's Huddle. And if you're not a member already, I would urge you to sign up at our front page at devilsdidus.com. If you enjoy listening to me in this podcast, I have much, much more to offer to my premium subscribers at the devilsdigest.com. And the first question from the Devil's Huddle, my premium message board, comes from Santon Devil. Is Roe Wilkins coming to ASU a move to Wilkins where he's trying to improve his exposure to the NFL at the Power 5 level before exhausting his eligibility? A move that Rice fans or those are covering the team beam in as a loss of a starter, significant contributor, or indictment of Arizona State's defensive line depth? Quite the loaded question there, my friend. Probably a question I probably should have saved for last instead of uh, starting out the segment with it. But uh, look, when you look at the numbers by Wilkins, they definitely are respectable at worst. He was in all-conference USA honorable mention in 2017 and 2018. He posted a career-high 50 tackles last season, which tied him fourth on the team. He was credited with uh, 20 tackles the last four games for the Owls. So I, I have a hard time believing that Rice fans and Rice beat writers are shrugging their shoulders over losing a player of the caliber of Wilkins. 
is he trying to improve his stock for NFL teams? Sure. Even though I think that in this day and age, no matter how small a school you are playing in, and I'm going to quote Rice, an extremely small school, you know, it's still in the group of five conference, so it's not really hard to find or detect talent on that level. But yes, I mean, you are going to have more exposure when you play in a Power Five conference, but I don't feel that playing at a school like Rice would limit your exposure that much. I mean, if you're good, you're good. And, and, and you will be found and you will be recruited. But is your path easier in a Power Five conference? Sure. I don't think there's much argument about that. Is his addition a testament to ASU's thin numbers at defensive line? Yeah, absolutely. I think that Arizona State knew that after signing day, they needed to add one, one if not two, more, more defensive linemen. And I think that the departures of both Jalen Bates and Darius Slade definitely enhanced the timeline, if you will, to, to get that done. But uh, sure, I think there's no doubt that he's somebody that has been identified to the depth. Whether he can contend for starting position or not, we won't know until fall camp. But I, I feel that it's, it really was a, a solid addition uh, for the team. And the coaches, again, they were willing to be patient with him until he made his decision. And I think that was a testament of how good they felt about the potential contribution he can have on this team. So all in all, I think it was, it was a good addition for Arizona State. And I don't think the Rice coaches and fans are too happy about Wilkins leaving, but probably do understand. Next question, again, coming from Santan Devil. This is a basketball one. How does Arizona State expect to replace both Daquan Lake and potentially uh, Lugens Dort in the 2019-2020 season? Well, I'll answer the question about Dort first. I'm not going to say that Arizona State is going to go back to its guard you roots, if you will, in the 2019-2020 season. But the fact that you're losing only one guard in Dort, and right now adding three guards, Alonzo Verge, junior college transfer, already signed with the Sun Devils, Jalen House from the high school ranks, local over here from Phoenix, Shadow Mountain, another recruit that already signed. And now Caleb uh, Christopher, who the other week committed to Arizona State, expected to sign with the Sun Devils next week. It is going to be a more guard-heavy team, if you will, just because you're losing Zylan Cheatham and Daquan Lake due to exhausting their eligibility. Now, you definitely do have some pieces in place in the front court. Ursh Plasvic, the seven-foot Serbian center who redshirted this season, is definitely going to be counted on to be a contributor in the front court for Arizona State. You still have Romello White coming back next year. You also have Tayshawn Cherry coming back as well, although he's less of a classic front court player compared to the other two players I just mentioned. In theory, Vitaly Scheibel could come back next year as well. Again, probably closer to Tayshawn Cherry in terms of his skill set 
as a, as a, as a front court player. Uh, Jalen Graham, a, a forward from uh, Mountain Point, locally here in Phoenix, uh, is a player that committed to Arizona State, expected to sign next month. So that's another in, in, another front court player that will aim to replace both Cheatham and Daquan Lake. And Arizona State, as you may know, is uh, in the hunt for a couple of centers in the high school ranks. Uh, Raymond Hawkins from uh, Finley Prep being, uh, being, being one of them. So I do see Arizona State having a strong possibility of adding five players in this 2019 recruiting class with the last player being being a front court player because there's absolutely need over there. But again, when it comes to replacing Dort and bolstering uh, the guard position, like I said, don't be surprised, and I'm not saying this as a negative at all, but just as a matter of fact, that you might see more guard U elements in next year's team compared to this year's team just because of the talent that you're losing in Zylan Cheatham and Daquan Lake while still trying to allow younger players in the front court to develop. Next question for the Devils Huddle comes from ASU PMAC. Are you finally coming around that this is a Pac-12 championship Sweet 16 caliber team? One of the most impressive developments in a, in the depth of our group displayed despite being beat without Deshaun Cherry in Tucson. Also, don't you feel don't you feel that we will be better equipped to handle NCAA tournament play without soft Pac-12 reps blowing the whistle every 10 seconds. I'll answer the very last question first, and I went on record many times saying this, and I'll say it one more time, even though some ASU fans out there may disagree with me, but that NCAA tournament game that I did cover in person in Dayton against Syracuse was one of the best officiating games I've seen Arizona State play last season because they called everything that should have been called time and time again Impact 12 play, and more specifically, when players like Trey Holder and Shannon Evans, who granted are undersized guards, nobody's denying that, but if they got hacked on the way to the basket, a foul was called, period, end of, end of sentence. And it wasn't a matter of, you know, Pac-12 officials trying to over-analyze the situation maybe even punishing an undersized guard that he's getting challenged at the basket, whether it's a legal challenge or not a legal challenge. So, yeah, I think that if Arizona State makes it to the NCAA tournament, which I believe they will, then, yeah, you, you can't expect a fair officiated game in comparison to your typical Pac-12 game that Arizona State has been involved. So, yeah, you definitely have to convince me in that matter when it comes to non-Pac-12 officials and how they call a game compared to the Pac-12 officials. But if I'm coming, finally coming around, this is a Pac-12 championship, Sweet 16 caliber team, and I know I'm going to have some other questions over here on the podcast regarding that. What do I expect from Arizona State to do in the Pac-12 tournament, let alone in the NCAA tournament? And look, I'm, I'm really still on the fence on this. I do acknowledge the fact that I mentioned earlier in the podcast that Arizona State did win five of the last six games so far. And that's nothing to sneeze at. And it's definitely encouraging that you're playing your best basketball 
at this time of the year. There's, there's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, we've seen so many times this team snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, if you will, and have that head-scratching loss that absolutely defies what this team is capable of, defies the potential of this squad. And you just wonder if that is lurking just around the corner, whether it's the first game of the Pac-12 tournament, or if Arizona State wins that game, then maybe the second contest of that tournament. And in the NCAA tournament, when they face a program which, at least on paper, they should win, maybe even run away with their win, and are just going to lay an egg. I mean, I'm, I'm still... I don't know if waiting is the, right, is the right word for it, but I still know that that's a very, very real possibility with this Arizona State Sun Devil team. <coughs> the way the bracket is set up in the Pac-12 tournament, I don't know if meeting Oregon or Utah in the semifinals is really the path of less resistance, if you will, for Arizona State to reach the Pac-12 tournament finals and then have a chance to win their first ever Pac-12 tournament title. So I'm still on the fence on that one. And when it comes to the NCAA tournament, Sweet 16, I, I just don't know. Just because, again, ASU is on pretty good roll right now. But there have been too many times... I think for anybody's likings to see this Arizona state team underperform in a gross matter at times. And that's why I'm really, really holding back on saying that this is a PAC 12 tournament championship team, let alone a sweet 16 caliber squad. If they prove me wrong or not, we'll, we'll get to see this week and the following week. And in terms of the question of the, when you talk about the development um, of this team playing uh, very, very well without Tayshawn Cherry, look, I mean, I think Tayshawn Cherry has been a vital component in some games for Arizona State, but really not all of them. To me, what was more impressive is Kimani Lawrence and his play off the bench when Rob Edwards scores no points, when Lugens Dort has to sit somewhat long stretches in, in, in foul trouble. I feel that actually what Lawrence did in specific was really probably the most impressive aspect to me. I mean, Remy Martin looks like any time that he's going to play Arizona, he's going to show up big time. Yeah, you know, Zylan Cheatham against Dort at, at pretty good games, but I just feel that Kimani Lawrence and the performance that he had, especially off the bench, was really, really huge. Uh, again, you're getting zero points from Dort, only two points from uh, from Daquan Lake. Uh, Elias Valtanen, even though he played nine solid minutes, he didn't score a lot of points. Romelo White only had five points, so he just needed somebody to supplement that production. And uh, Kimani Lawrence, to me, did did a very, a very, very good job about that. The next question comes from Lobo Jangles. What are your thoughts about depth? And I'm assuming he's talking about the ASU football team over here. 
Seems a few transfers were good enough to catch on at the SEC schools, but they weren't decent enough to survive Hermination, I guess, <laughs> or Hermination, maybe that's how you pronounce it. And what happens if ASU has a couple of injuries? Look, I mean, there's no doubt, especially on the defensive line, that the numbers were, were scary. I mean, there's, there's no way even to overstate or be hyperbolic about that. But the cavalry is on the way in terms of transfers coming into the program, replacing guys like Jalen Bates and Darius Slade. And in terms of just overall scholarship players, I mean, yeah, Arizona State's not going to be more than in the mid-70s as far as that number goes. Not ideal when you can have a limit of 85 scholarship players, but I feel that when fans are concerned about the lack of depth on this football team, it's way too skewed with all the players that had to sit out during spring practice, and there really were quite a few of them. Whether it's players that just came into spring knowing that they're still rehabbing from injury and there was no way they could play anyway, or players that were just injured pretty early in spring and were held out for most, if not all, of spring practice. So I just think the picture we saw in spring practice is very, very skewed. And I don't mind revisiting that question come fall camp once there's going to be many, many more bodies on the team, especially on defense, to really make an assessment on how thin or how deep this team is. Next question comes from ATXSATX. <laughs> I guess it's too, this took too early in the day to try to pronounce that. Um, so he's talking about Yorish Plasvic, how he's developing, any chance he contributes much uh, next season. And with Daquan Lay gone, ASU is going to need some size to complement Ronaldo White. Is Yorish just a body or someone Hurley thinks he can become a good Pac-12 center? From the reports I heard from my team sources, there's definitely optimism that he can be a, serv a servable, serviceable center. And I don't think anybody that would be a very glaring drop-off from what Daquan Lake was able to do this year. I think Arizona State is going to rely even more on Romello White next year than they did this year. And Plastic can, can complement White to some extent, but I think that there is some genuine excitement about what he can bring to the table. I went on record earlier that not earlier this podcast, but just earlier in the year, that I felt Pacific was probably, by some recruiting services, rated way too high. And maybe that's creating an unfair expectation from this young player. But overall, I'm optimistic that you're not going to see a drop-off from Daquan Lake. And maybe as time goes on, and Daquan Lake has only been here for two years, so really not able to see a full development of a player from year one to year four, but with Plastic, I think that you'll see a rate of development, which in my eyes is going to be encouraging. And I feel that somebody, again, that definitely can be a contributor in the in the front court. Again, compared to Daquan Lake, don't compare to Zylan Cheatham because that's the more fair comparison over here. But I don't think it's anybody that is going to absolutely disappoint so bad that you wonder why Arizona State recruited him in the first place. So again, I mean, I think his rating 
in some recruiting services is misleading, if not quite misleading. But nonetheless, I think Arizona State will be fine. As always, with big men, not only in basketball, but also in football, you just have to really, really be patient and just hope that patience is rewarded down the road. Next set of questions from our listeners comes from Twitter, and you can always tweet your questions at the Devils, at the Devils Junkies Podcast, or at AC Rivals on Twitter. Once you get notification that I do have a podcast that's about to drop, so I welcome your questions over there, and thank you for all who submitted questions this week. The first one at Political Jockey: Which ASU basketball team is going to show up during tournament time? Pac-12 slash NCAA, the one that beats Arizona on the road in Kansas. Or the one that loses to Princeton and Washington State? And how does Hurley get his players to play to win? Look, I know that there were some times during the year that we thought that Arizona State had turned the corner. It did have a three-game winning streak earlier in the year. And we thought that, okay, maybe Arizona State is done with this Jekyll and Hyde nonsense and is ready to play consistent basketball. And that didn't materialize for a while. But winning five of the last six games definitely gives you some encouragement over there. I'd like to think that Arizona State is in the best place it has been all season right now, the, the, the way it's playing and the results it's achieving. I'm optimistic that they can win the first game in the Pac-12 tournament. Again, that will be against the winner of the UCLA-Stanford contest. But in the semifinals, playing Oregon or Utah, especially Oregon, is not a favorable matchup at all. Uh, Oregon is that one team that, trust me, nobody in the Pac-12 tournament wants to face. And if they were somehow to be able to make it to the NCAA tournament, I would also think that the all 67 teams do not want to face a team like Oregon, who right now is riding a four-game winning streak and is finally playing up to its potential. As you recall, just the other week, they absolutely demolished Arizona State in Eugene. So for the Sun Devils to play the Ducks just two weeks or so removed from that contest is definitely not an enticing proposition. So that's my take about the Pac-12 tournament. As far as the answer the way one, I'm pretty optimistic that they could win their first game, whether it's the playing game in Dayton, which last year I think they just had a really bad drawing against Syracuse, who, as some some of you may recall, actually made it to the Sweet 16 after playing that playing game in Dayton against Arizona State. So needless to say that your chances of success or failure in the NCAA tournament are so, so reliant on the drawing that you get. The Pac-12 tournament, you always see the bracket before the games are even played, and you have a pretty good idea of how successful you can be. But to answer a question right now on March 10th as to what kind of run ASU will or won't have in the NCAA tournament, it's, it's really impossible to answer. But I like to think that this team is good enough to win its first-round matchup, but will a favorable drawing be essential for that to happen? Absolutely. Next question comes from uh, Kirby Bob, at Kirby Bobby one Why don't we run more of a full-court press, and what happened to Mickey Mitchell? Uh, answer the second question first. Mickey Mitchell, 
has had chronic back issues pretty much from the beginning of the season. AC tried to play him in a couple of games. Wasn't really able to do much due to his physical condition. He's been undergoing extensive physical therapy for just about five months now. And unfortunately for ASU, there really has not been any measurable improvement in his health that would allow him to really play this year. I kind of doubt that you'll see him play in the Pac-12 tournament and or NCAA tournament at this point. And uh, I already went on record saying that the medical retirement for Mickey Mitchell is a plausible scenario at the very least right now. So that's how matters pertain to his condition. And that's another reason why Arizona State is allowing itself to have a pretty heavy class, if you will, 2019, 2019 recruiting class, that is, and actually poised to bring in five new players just because I just doubt if the coaching staff is really counting on Megan Mitchell just because of a physical condition to be a member of the 2019-2020 squad. As far as not running more of a full-court press, I just think it probably comes to a a trust level that Bobby Hurley may or may not have in his players, as well as just maybe just a philosophical thinking in his scheme that even if he did trust his players to execute at a high level, he just prefers to be more set in the front court rather than roll the dice with that scheme. I mean, that's really the only explanation that I, that, that I could come up with. <clears throat> Does Bobby Hurley have that in his back, pa- back pocket to flash out during the Pac-12 tournament and the NCAA tournament? Sure, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that. There are obviously certain situations, certain matchups that would warrant that. But I just feel that Hurley, more often than not, does not feel comfortable employing that scheme, at least on a consistent basis. And that's the reason why you're not uh, seeing it in each and every game. Next question from uh, at Sundevil BLT. Again, a question about Mickey Mitchell. I addressed that one. So I'll move to the last question uh, on Twitter, which is from at uh, Sasso76, who is also a premium subscriber at Devil's Digest, Sasso05. Thank you very much for your support. How does the defensive line look going into the fall? Do you see us adding any more defensive linemen before fall practice? So in terms of additions, uh, no. I think Arizona State is content adding the two defensive linemen that it added from the junior college ranks, T.J. Tessafea, and the graduate transfer from Rice, Roe Wilkins. That, in a sense, really replaces the departures of Darius Slade and Jalen Bates. So number-wise, everything works out. As we know, we have players coming coming off of injury in the fall, incoming freshmen coming in in the summer as well. And those numbers are going to be bolstered quite a bit. So there's really no reason for Arizona State to overreach and try to get a third defensive line post-signing day in this 2019 class. As far as the defensive line, in terms of how it's looking, again, I feel that once you have all those pieces in place, you're going to have a pretty formidable two deep and not one that is going to be vastly inferior in talent 
compared to the 2018 team. So I think that there's definitely uh, no reason right now for concern. Again, I know I said it a thousand times. I'll say it, I'll say it for the thousand and first time that I understand that the really ridiculously low numbers at defensive line have given fans great cause for concern. And I can't blame them for that, but it's really one of those situations where you should just absolutely erase from your memory, from what you saw in the spring from the defensive line. And just keep in mind that it's going to be a totally different looking group in fall camp. And one that maybe talent wise still might be inferior to a very, very deep linebacker group and secondary group, but nonetheless one that's definitely going to hold its own and not cause for any noticeable drop off in the overall defensive performance for the Sun Devils. So that'll wrap it up for this week's episode of the Devils Junkies podcast. I plan to record the next episode on Selection Sunday, March 17th, talking about Arizona State's performance in the Pac-12 tournament and obviously their potential inclusion in the NCAA tournament. If you want to hear more of my thoughts on a daily basis about ASU football and ASU basketball, I encourage you to subscribe to the devilsdigest.com. Join a group of civil and passionate fans like yourself in our Devils Huddle talking about these topics each and every day. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Hoda Vino. Enjoy the rest of your week. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. All my friends were vampires. Didn't know they were vampires. Turns out I was a vampire myself in the devil town. Oh, Lord, it brings me down about the devil town.